Alright, Hebrews 7. Okay. Forgive me as I get organized here. My notes didn't want to pop up first thing this morning. I had some network stuff going on. So, they're here. Hopefully I won't even really need them. Hopefully. I think, I think what we're going to talk about today makes sense. We talked about it last week when we were talking about um, when we first started talking about Melchizedek and, and the interaction we had with Abraham, we talked about how, how, how sensible the reaction that Abraham had, that he would give him a tithe, that, he, that, that Melchizedek would bless him, and it, it was sensible. It made sense that he would, he would, he would sacrifice some of his, his possessions to him because he'd been blessed by somebody who was superior to him. And, and I hope that by the end of this, Today that it all kind of makes sense. I think I think as we read it, it's gonna it's gonna feel right. I think it's something that's gonna just make sense. It's gonna be like, yeah, this is the point that the author has been building to ever since we started this back in what March, April, April, I think it was. So I think I think we've been hinting at what he's building towards for a long time, not wanting to get ahead of ourselves because. It's kind of a slow burn that the author has as he's writing these words and he's kind of building to a particular point. Um, so I think today he's going to really start to, he's going to let Daniel and I actually start saying the things that we've been wanting to say, but we couldn't because it was coming up. So we're going to, we're really starting to get into it today. Um, I think it's funny, we were, right before we started, we were just talking about the building and stuff. And um, I don't know if everybody got a chance to go look in the nursery now that it's basically done, but um, I think it looks fantastic. Has everybody gotten a chance to look in there? I think it looks amazing. Um, it's crazy to think that we have a room that looks that nice in this building, to me, because, because for most of us, we know what this building looked like when we first moved in, right? Um, I, I would describe, yeah, go, in that, go through that door if you want to see what it looked like when we first moved in, um, because... I described it as nothing more than a garage, basically. It was a glorified garage. You could park a car in here, and the value of the car would probably come down. It's probably the way it would have worked out when we first moved in, right? Uh, leaky roof that still needs a little work. Um, black walls with some weird red color on them. Uh, dust everywhere. No running water, no power, nothing like that. We had a room over there that we could that we could put those like interlocking kinder mats that are now back over there, that we could put back there and put the kids, give the kids somewhere to be, but we could hear every single thing that happened in there. They could hear every single thing that happened out here. So we've been working on it, and now it's starting to get to this place. And, and I was just thinking about this yesterday, because several of us were over here just kind of tidying up some loose ends on some big projects. Even some of these little details. Like we put some molding up around the top of that wall. We put, we put some baseboard in the nursery. We put some tiles back on the edges of those bars there and stuff. And it's like we had a room that could suffice for kids, but now we have a room for the kids that's even better. We had, we had one bar that had a lot of wasted space in the back, and now we've got two that make sense. And and so now that's set up better. We had no running water, so we had to go home if we wanted to use the bathroom. And now we have bathrooms, so that's, that's, that's better. And, and, and we're getting to see the same kind of comparisons just within our building. It was something. 
here is something better. It was something, here is something better. And that's the same kind of case that we've been preaching through the book of Hebrews. That you are used to one thing. This building was one thing, and now it is being made something better. It is being presented with something better. It has a better purpose than what it did when we first came here a year ago. And that's the same case the author of Hebrews has been making about Jesus this whole time. You have all of these assumptions about, about life and, and, and your religion and the way that God wants to be worshipped. But let me explain to you that Jesus is a better way. Jesus is superior to all of those other things. Jesus is better. And that's why that has been our theme, because that is exactly what he's going to say. And today as we finish up chapter 7, we're going to be in verses 11 through 28. We're going through the end of the chapter. He's going to make this kind of comparison several times today. I think this is as obvious a case for Jesus is better as we've come across up to this point. This is as directly as he's going to state it. And the way that I want to do this today is we're just going to go verse at a time and we're going to let him kind of build his case for us. Instead of reading it all up front, I want us just to kind of make sure we understand each step along the way so that by the end, I think... We're going to have this really clear understanding of what he's been building to this whole time. So let's go ahead and start here in Hebrews chapter 7, and I'm going to read verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Okay, so what we talked about last week was this. This guy, Melchizedek, from the Old Testament, who had blessed Abraham, and he was, he was a priest of God Most High, and, and we talked about how Abraham submitted to this guy because he was obviously superior to him, and by virtue of that, Abraham and all of his lineage also submitted to Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek is a superior priesthood to any priesthood that would come out of the line of Abraham, which was the Levitical priesthood. And the case that the author of Hebrews has been making for seven chapters now is that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is a better high priest. But he's a high priest of a different order. And he's been saying this several different times. And now he's going to kind of introduce this idea of Jesus' priesthood in the pre under the priesthood of Melchizedek with this kind of interesting rhetorical question. He's going to ask an obvious question that you're going to have to answer in your brain. He says, if perfection was possible, why change priesthood? And what's the obvious answer to that? Was perfection possible under the Levitical priesthood? If Jesus came as a priest from a different priesthood, then obviously the other one was not perfect. And obviously it was, it was not going to save perfectly. And we're going to understand a little bit more of why that was as we read. And it says perfection. That word can also be translated completion. So, so it was incomplete. The Levitical priesthood presented aspects of who God is, how God wanted to be worshipped. But it was never able to completely save us. It was never able to completely take away our sin. It was never able to bring us perfectly into the presence of God. We've talked about this as we've talked about the different 
aspects of the role of a priest and how, and how to actually get into the presence of God only one man could do one time a year and, and how separate the people ended up remaining from God because of their sin and because of the holiness of God because if they walked into the presence of God and they were, and they were stained with sin they would just die in His presence right there because He is so holy. And so what he's saying is, this new priesthood is not like the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was incomplete. The Levitical priesthood could not fully accomplish what God truly wanted for us. The kind of relationship that God intended when He created us in Genesis. We couldn't have that kind of relationship under that priesthood. So let's go and move on here to verse 12. So if we're going to say that, that the Levitical priesthood is incomplete, he's going to now ask us, he's going to make a, a statement based off of that understanding. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a necessary change in the law as well. And this is, I think, kind of the... I mean, you've got to think, if you're a Jew, and you've been living by the law your whole life, he's now basically come out and said directly, I'm saying we need a different priesthood. And by virtue of having a different priesthood... That means we have to reevaluate the purpose and intent of the law. That thing that you have defined your entire life by, we have to change the way we understand about what our relationship is to it. What is the point of the law? How is the law supposed to affect us? Because the law established the Levitical priesthood. It was when God gave them the law that He gave them all of the instructions for how to carry out the priesthood. And so to change any aspect of the law would mean you'd have to reevaluate the whole thing. If you change the priesthood, you can't just say, all right, we're going to change the priesthood because everything was so tightly woven together in the law, everything connected to everything else, that if we're going to take the Levitical priesthood out and insert this new priesthood, we have to reevaluate the whole law. We have to understand the whole law, which leads us to a really important question. And I think this is an important question for us. This is obviously the question that the people who would be reading this when he wrote it I would have been asking, so why, why do we even have the law to begin with? If you're just going to come, take the law away from us, why even give it to us in the first place? Why couldn't we just have this whole Jesus plan all along? And I think, if you want, you can turn there if you want, if not, you want to just make a note. Galatians chapter 3, I think, gives us a pretty good explanation of that. If you want to turn there, I didn't have it marked, so you've got time. These pages are awful sticky. Like the one page I want to get to won't let me in. There we go. So we're going to go to Galatians 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 23 and I'm going to read through 26 here. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Here's the important one. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So, the law was given to us to... It was given to show, and it continues to show us who we are. And what the requirements are for us to enter into the presence of God. And, and it guards us against falling farther away from God and, and diving deeper into the sin that separates us from Him. 
um, it still acts as a good barometer for where we are in our, in our process of maturing and becoming more and more like Jesus. But the law was never intended. What does he say? It was just a guardian. It was never, it was never the end game. The law was never the ultimate means by which God was going to bring his people back to himself. It was the way that he was going to reveal to them that they needed him to bring them back. But, but there's nothing in the law that ever says, and when you do this, this is going to make you holy enough to be in the presence of God. That statement doesn't exist in the law. It keeps continuing to say, God is holy. God demands perfection. Perfection is not attainable by broken, wicked beings. And the law doesn't do anything to provide us perfection. The law only works as a mirror to show us how imperfect we are and how much we are in need of him to do something for us. And that something is what came with Jesus, and that's what he says here in Galatians 3. But now that faith has come, faith being Jesus, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So, so the, law, the law was good for what it was intended for, and it is still good for what it was intended for. Right? To reveal to us who we are, to reveal to us what God demands. But without Jesus, that's it. We just know there's no way I can get to God. There's nothing that I can do to, to, to earn His favor. It's only by the work of Jesus that His favor can be given to us. Because we are powerless to fulfill the law on our own. And, and, and the author here is really challenging the mindset of the Jews here, right? Because up to this point, up to before Jesus, they thought the law was the end. The, the law was the goal. And the law is no longer the end. He's saying you have to think of it completely differently. The law is not the end. The law is the means by which God is revealing who you are and who he is to you. That he might save you through Jesus. So, so there's a change in the priesthood. That means there's a necessary change in the, in the law. Which really means there's a necessary change in the way that the law was perceived. He's got to think. He's writing to a bunch of people who are tempted to return to Judaism from Christianity. They're wanting to run back to the old mindset, the old way of thinking. And he's saying, there's no point in running back to that. Because if you run back to that, you're running away from, you're running back to a mindset where you think that you can attain something on your own. You think you can earn God's favor. And he's saying, you need Jesus. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the better way. Let's go ahead and keep reading back here in Hebrews 7. We'll go verses 13 and 14. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah... And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So he's continuing to build the case that Jesus is definitely a different plan, a different way of thinking. This was actually a question that I think came up in our CG like a month ago. Um, it was, the question was, wouldn't it have just been easier if he had just come as a Levite? So it wouldn't have been nearly as confusing, right? They, they would have accepted him if he came as a Levite. Why did he have to come from the tribe of Judah? 
And, and what the author is saying here is I lose my place. What the author is saying is that it was necessary that he come from the tribe of Judah to show contrast. We want it to be obvious that this is a change of mindset. If it's, if it's too similar, you might miss the differences between the law and grace. Which that's, that's the big divide here is trying to attain perfection by the law and trying to attain perfection by the grace of God. And if, and if it was too similar, you might not have noticed that this was a change in mindset, a change in paradigm. The way we're going to understand how God is going to work to bring his people back to himself. So it was vital that Jesus came from another tribe to set up this contrast. If Jesus had been a Levite, it would have been easier but it would have not been as powerful, I think. I think they would have not understood, oh wait, this is a very different sort of thing. And God was very intentional. One of the things that we keep seeing, the more and more we study this, is God does nothing by accident. There's no, there was no happenstance that Jesus just all of a sudden ended up coming from the tribe of Judah and God intended for something else to happen. He was surprised, right? That, that doesn't happen. God is not surprised. So he intended for him to come from a different tribe, a tribe that had absolutely nothing to do with the priesthood, so that when he is established as a priest, it's obvious that he's being established as a priest by God, a point that we're going to get to here in just a second. Let's keep reading. Verses 15 and 16. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus was not our priest because he was born in a certain family. Because to that it would seem kind of, it could seem to our human perception like, oh, that was just happenstance. He just happened to be born into the right family where he become that's the way it felt to a lot of the priests at that time because you think you were born in a certain family you get to be a priest you happen to be born in the tribe of Levi you can be a priest you happen to be born in the tribe of Levi and you happen to have all of these requirements met you can be the high priest so when a priest arises from a different order it's not because of it's not because of his bloodline. It's not because of his family. He didn't just earn that by basis of where he was born. He had to be appointed a priest of a different order. And we'll, and we'll understand that a little bit more when we read verses 16 and 17. So how did he become a priest? Why is Jesus a priest? If he wasn't born of a particular family, how did he attain his priesthood? I'm going to read verse 16 again and go into 17. Who has become like a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we've read these, that verse a lot uh, since we started reading Hebrews. That's that same quote from Psalm 110. It's that same quote from Psalm 110 that we've talked about on several different occasions. The fact that Jesus would get, be able to serve as a priest eternally establishes him as a better priest, right? 
Any priest that they had experienced up to this point was just going to die. And he's going to talk about that here in just a second. But, but Jesus was established as a priest forever because he, is, he himself is forever. He himself had no beginning, had no end. We talked about that when we looked at Melchizedek last night, who was like Jesus in that we didn't know of his beginning, we didn't know of his end. So his priesthood continues on forever. Jesus never gives up that role of priest. Jesus serves as our priest eternally. So he became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. And it says, for his witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll talk about one more reason that he has become our priest here in just a second. But let's go ahead and keep reading on for now. Verse 18 and 19. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So, so he's starting to answer the question that he asked at the very beginning today. He's starting to answer, if the law, can the law make you perfect? He's saying, no, the law makes nothing perfect. So he's saying, we now have to set aside, we have to, we have to put down the high regard with which we hold the law as a means of salvation. We have to put that thought aside because when you compare it to Jesus, when you compare it to perfection, when you compare it to an indestructible life that's going to continue on for eternity, the law begins to look weak and useless. Now we've already said it has purpose, but it looks powerless when compared to the saving power of what Jesus offers us. When you, when you hold the law up next to grace, the law looks weak, is what he's saying. When you look at the, the goodness and the power of the grace of Jesus, what he has done and what he provides and how he provides it, there is no comparison. A better hope is introduced. There's that word again, better. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Because, because if anything, the law showed us how far away we were from God. The law just continued to reveal to us I can't get there. Look at the holiness of God. Look at how broken I am. And it, and it fills us with humility. It fills us with this sense of, I can't do anything to get to Him. But through this priesthood, through the perfect priesthood of Jesus, we are made to where we can draw near to God. That's a big difference. Farther away, closer to God. He's bringing us in. He's serving us as our priest allows us to, for him to welcome us in because he makes us clean. The law, under the law, if the priest went in and he had some sin in his life or he had not provided the proper sacrifice for himself, he would die on the spot because God could not be in the presence of that kind of sin. He would, he would just die right there. But under the priesthood of Jesus, we are made clean so that he can bring us, he makes us clean. It's not dependent on anything that we do. He makes us clean and welcomes us into his presence. Let's go ahead and move on. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest 
with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Because we said this already, right? The Levitical priests did not become a priest by anything other than they were born into the right family. There was nothing remarkable about any one priest other than he happened to be in the tribe of Levi. So he was able to serve as a priest. But he's saying here, Jesus was made a priest by enough. He was appointed to this priesthood by God. God made him a priest. And he said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest. God has sworn. God has made an oath that he is going to make Jesus our priest. And he is going to allow him to serve as our priest eternally. It's not just by virtue of he was born in the right family. It's not that he did something right. It's not like he did he performed some action that helps him attain priesthood. He didn't have to go through any ritual. God picked him and said, you are going to be a priest forever. I am establishing your priesthood forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it's not going to change. God is not going to change his mind. And I think we could all agree with this idea that if you're trying to compare the way that you became a priest to be appointed personally by God into your priesthood is a far more powerful thing. Is a far more important thing. Is a far superior thing. It shows Jesus to be much greater than the Levitical priesthood. He was handpicked. He was, he was placed in that position by God. And this is where the author is going to start to transition. And we're going to talk about this idea for the next couple of weeks. But he's going, to start, he's going to start this discussion of what it means that we have a better priest under a better priesthood. It means that we're going to have a better covenant. So verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is better able to save us because he isn't prevented by death from continuing to do the, his, his work. These priests that they were dependent on, they, keep, they kept having to have more and more and more of them because they'd die. Just like all of us, they were mortal men who could not continue to serve. So there were all of these priests, and, and I guess it's, it's kind of a comparison of quantity versus quality here, in a sense, because he's saying, yeah, you had a lot of priests, but you had to have a lot because they kept dying, or because they'd fall into sin, and then God would kill them. You know, that sort of thing, that old thing, God killed them. You know. but, but we only need one priest if that one priest is not going to die, is not going to cease being able to serve as our priest. Which means he's going to be able to save whoever he wants to save for however long he wants to save, you know, for however long he can because he is going to continue forever. And he's going to continually be making intercession for us. And it's that same idea again. 
He lives to make intercession for us. He makes us clean so that we can be in His presence. He provides the way that we can have community with God. The Levitical priesthood didn't provide that. The Levitical priesthood was basically just, you know, keeping everything together for the time being. And he's saying, you understand this now. You understand that that was never the end game. That was never the final point. The whole point was that it kind of sufficed for now until Jesus came on the scene to where he could actually make you clean and welcome you into his presence. Let's go ahead and finish this up. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting. I love that word, fitting. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. We said that that word could also be complete. Jesus' sacrifice was more complete and able to actually accomplish salvation than any and all the sacrifices that have been offered by the Levitical priesthood in the history of the nation of Israel. Even if you took all of those sacrifices and put them together, they could not measure up the power of the one sacrifice of God's perfect Son sacrificing Himself as a means of salvation. Why was His sacrifice able to accomplish so much? He says, because He was holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. Because this was the only truly unblemished sacrifice that had been made. The only one that God would accept as salvation for the world. And it's the one that we talked about when we read in Galatians. That faith that has come. That is that. That sacrifice is what brings us the opportunity to have that faith. And since he's the only one who can save us perfectly, he's the only one who can serve us perfectly as our high priest. Because he's the only one who is able to continue to guarantee that promise of salvation. Because he's the only one who's going to be there forever to continue to offer it. And so what the author, I think, is trying, the whole point he's trying to make is... Your intent, the intent behind what you do has to change. There has to be a change in mindset. When there's a change in priesthood, there's a change in the law. When there's a change in your heart, there's a change in the way you understand God's intent of the whole law up to this point. Just like we were talking about this building. When we first bought this building, it was being built with a completely different intent in mind. Right? And, and it looked completely different and it was heading in a completely different direction. And, and, and new ownership came in with a new intent, with a new heart for what this building needed to be. And it, and it was necessary that this building start to look different. 
It was necessary that changes start to take place in here because there was a different intent for what this building was. It was time for something new to happen in this building. It didn't need an office that had an open ceiling. It needed a closed, closed room so that the kids could sit there and play and read and sing. And we could be out here and read the Bible, study scripture, sing together. That is a different intent. And when there was all of a sudden a different intent, there had to be some tangible changes in this place. When the people who are reading Hebrews understood the point he's trying to make, he's saying, there has been a change in priesthood. There's been a change in the way we understand the law. That has to affect your life tangibly. It is necessary that as you understand who Jesus is and the point of why Jesus came, that your life reflect a change. There is a necessary change when you are confronted with the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, if you have not had your eyes opened by the power of the Holy Spirit to see Jesus for who he is, that necessary change is that you see who Jesus is and you, and you surrender your life to him. Some of us in here still have not done that. That's step one. Step one is surrender to Jesus everything. We talked about that last week. When you're faced with someone who is superior, you submit to them. When we are, when we are faced with the Son of God, we surrender our lives to Him. If you are in the church, if you are a believer, we have to understand that when we are met with Jesus, there is an, a necessary change in our lives. We don't get to continue looking the same way that we did before. Our purpose is different. The whole understanding behind our being has changed. There is a change in priesthood in our lives. We are no longer serving as our own priests. We now have Jesus who serves as a priest for us. So what does that look like? That looks like us seeking the will of God, trying to better understand who Jesus is, something the author's been trying to do this whole time. Understand the superiority of Jesus over everything else in our lives. Run to Jesus even faster. Try to understand the heart of God even better. And allow that to define what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our affections, what we do with every single aspect of our lives. And so that's why when we're up here and we're preaching, we're saying, we want you to be more like Jesus. We want you to be more part of the church. It's because, it's like he says here, it's fitting that we would do that. It, it is fitting that faced with who Jesus is, we would be like, obviously I can't become that without knowing him more. And that we pray the will of God that we would become more like Christ. And that that would impact every other area of our life, every other aspect of what we do, who we are things we say, the places we go. Because, because if we're going to be successful, I don't know if successful is the right word. If we're going to be the church, we all have to be on the same page. We all have to have understood this necessary change in our lives. We all have to have the same mindset going into the mission that God has set before us. So, so like when we say, we're going to 
be the church today. We're going to go, we're going to go serve up here at the garden. We're going to go walk around and talk to people. Even if it's we're going to come here and we're going to put trim up and we're going to put down some baseboard, that sort of thing. We want you to be excited about that because we're changing this building with the intent of using this building as a means of propagating the gospel to our neighborhood. We want this building to be a place where people feel safe to come in and talk about what's going on in their life so that we can say, I know somebody that can help you with that. So, in light of what the author's trying to say, he's trying to say, I've got to get you to understand. Because he's been building this point. We've been saying this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Hashtag Jesus is better. Right? You know, we've been saying this. If that doesn't resonate within us, if we don't really understand the implications of Jesus is better, then all we're doing up here is just rambling on for, you know, 45 minutes or something like that. And we're not really accomplishing anything as the church. So I want us, as a church, to take this to heart. To understand that Jesus is a better high priest and that because he is a better high priest, the author was saying to them, you have to change your mindset. So if Jesus is going to be our, our high priest, we have to change our mindset. And this has to be a 24-7 sort of thing. A full-time commitment sort of all-in sort of thing. And so, as we're praying here in just a minute, I just want us to, I want us to think through where our lives are as we think about how highly we value Jesus. Because all of this, this section of these verses was, was trying to play up the same idea that we've had the whole time. Jesus is better. And does your life really reflect the idea that in your heart, in your mind, Jesus is better than anything else? Or is there still something that trumps him? Or is there still several things that trump him? Is he really the epitome of your being? Is he really the thing that you are defined by? And if not, pray, beg God to make him superior in your life, superior in your heart, superior in your mind. Cool? Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for a complete way of bringing us back to you. God, thank you for bringing us back to you. Because we don't deserve that. We don't. There's nothing that we could do to earn that. And so, God, I pray that you would make the reality of the superior of your son present in our hearts and minds every moment of the day. Pray that our lives would reflect an understanding of the superiority of Jesus and a desire to make that obvious everywhere we go. God, I know, I know there are people in here right now that don't know your son. So I pray right now that you grab their hearts and that you would, you would awaken them. You would, you would breathe life into them. You would reveal yourself to them. You draw them to yourself. And I pray that if you're doing that, as you're doing that, that you would you'd cause them to be like, I need to, I need to talk about this. I need to, I need to, I need to make this known. I can't just keep this in. So God, I pray that you would also fill them with boldness.
God, I pray for the rest of us that we would continue to elevate your son in our lives. That we would not quietly sit by and play church and let life happen and miss the opportunity that you're giving to us to serve you. Pray that you would. I pray that you would save people in this area because of the work you're doing in this church. And I pray that you would continue to grow us not only closer to you, not only to becoming more and more like you, but that you would take us out and you would help us to make new disciples, to bring them back in, to disciple them, to nurture them, to show them who you are. God, I just pray that you would accomplish huge things through this church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to respond. Um, if you need to spend some time in prayer, do that. Uh, if you're wanting to come take communion, come take communion. Um, the offering plate is right over there on the bar. If you want to go drop that in there. Um, if you're one of the ones that maybe Jesus is opening your eyes for the first time and you need to talk to somebody, talk to somebody. Talk to me. Come talk to um, Dad. Talk to somebody. Don't be quiet about this. Um, sing loudly. Sing loudly. These are good songs. <laughs>